Welcome to the Skift Podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. Anyone who knows New York City has probably heard of the High Line, a public park created out of an abandoned elevated rail line on Manhattan's west side. 15 years ago, the line was slated for demolition, but today the High Line draws something like seven and a half million visitors a year and is credited with sparking economic activity worth billions of dollars. Those numbers are inspiring cities around the world to develop similar rails to trails projects. On this episode of the Skift Podcast, we're talking about the creation of the High Line, its legacy, and the quest to create the next big thing in parks. Joining us in the Skift office today is Adrian Benepe, who was New York City's Parks Commissioner when the High Line was being developed and when it first opened in 2009. He's Senior Vice President and City Park Development Director at the Trust for Public Land. And joining us by Skype is Meg Daly, founder and president of Friends of the Underline in Miami, which aspires to be a 10-mile linear park and urban trail. They're here with me, Skift podcast host Hannah Sampson and senior editor Greg Oates. Thank you, Adrian and Meg, so much for joining us. Great to be Thank here. Um, so I'm super interested in the Highline and, um, and its history. So Adrian, I have my first question for you. When the Highline was still just a plan, what was the city's expectation for the project? Was it a really difficult decision to uh, partner with the founders? And um, was that public-private partnership a tough sell? So it's funny, you know, the, the city was really two different cities at two different times. So at first, the city, which was under Mayor Giuliani, uh, responding to the local property owners developers was dead set against saving the High Line. In fact, it was slated to be torn down by the city. It was seen as an albatross, as an impediment to development, and as an eyesore. Only a lawsuit staved off its uh, being torn down and then gave a, a, enough time to come to the attention of Mike Bloomberg when he was running for mayor, and he decided it sounded like a good idea. And um, also the speaker of the city council, a guy named Gifford Miller, by coincidence was a Robert Hammond's college roommate at Princeton. And Robert Hammond is the is one of the founders. Robert Hammond is one of the founders of the Friends of the Highlands. So you had a you had a 180 degree turnaround by the city from wanting to tear it down to wanting to save it. But there was still this kind of many big gulp moments. Like when I was first told about this uh, soon after being appointed parks commissioner, my initial naive reaction was, no way, we could never have a park in the sky. This will never work. <laughs> but, you know, luckily both the mayor and Amanda Burton and others said, you know, it's, it really could work. Let's give it a try. And I, I was I was sold pretty quickly. And then we, we began to work in tandem, uh, the mayor and uh, Speaker Miller put some money in the budget. They were uh, the friends of the Highland were raising some private money, and more important, getting a lot of. They had already developed a lot of um, energy behind it, you know, with famous people and movie stars and fashion designers uh, <clears throat> getting behind it, and kind of the two forces came together, government and the private sector, and uh, did this very sort of difficult design project and found all the money necessary. And you could say the rest is history, but it was incredibly complex all along the way. There were land negotiations. We had to get the land from CSX and sign up to the city. We had to figure out how do you map a park in the sky? Because it got mapped as parkland. And then a very creative, um, creative process combining this public sector, the nonprofit sector, the corporate sector coming together and 
making this crazy thing happen. What at that point would have seemed like the ultimate success for the park? What is, was like, you know, if we have a million people a year, that'll be great. Or Yeah. I, I think we were envisioning a few hundred thousand people a year. <laughs> and nobody in their wildest imagination anticipated seven and a half million. And the interesting thing about this as a park, it's one of the few parks you'll find in the world that has a, a specific legal limit of people can be on it because it's basically, it's like a building in the sky and has a certain number of staircases to access it. And you have to limit the number so you don't exceed what is safe for public safety laws and public occupancy laws. You know, I, I, I don't think anybody anticipated the extent to which it would be an economic development magnet. You know, not just would it not be an albatross around the developers next, but would be a huge magnet for economic development. Though what few people know is that the city didn't just commit to turning the High Line into a park. It also simultaneously did a rezoning of the neighborhood called the West Chelsea Rezoning, which allowed for the building of residential buildings and what used to be purely manufacturing and allowed further allowed property owners who had property around the High Line to move their development rights to the avenues and have bigger buildings. So in other words, encouraged some of the bigger buildings to move away from the High Line. So you could build a bigger building and keep some light and air around the High Line. Some property owners had the rights to develop over the High Line, which was interesting, like the Standard Hotel and some others. Uh, but I think, as you as you suggest, there were many unexpected things: the success, the visitation, uh, the fact it would become kind of a sexual landscape with sort of a combination of voyeurism and exhibitionism happening at the same time. Because of like the ability to people watch in people's yeah, well, there's a, there's a very complex. This new book that was published about the High Line by the designers, um, which is a beautiful book. The designers have these dialogues within the book. And they talk quite a bit about the kind of sexual nature of the neighborhood before it was a park. It was a place for like some pretty edgy behavior. And then about the sexual behavior on the High Line, like one of the designers, Liz Dillard, says, I went for a walk and I counted 23 people, 23 couples making out passionately. Huh? It was also, I would say, one of the very first landscapes, parks, to I think to feel completely safe for gay people to have public displays of affection. Um, whereas that it used to be a dangerous thing to do in parks, you know, uh, gay people were the subject of attacks in certain parks. So there's a whole lot of sort of cultural things that happened with the, with the park too. So from a tourism standpoint, why do you think it's been so popular, um, for travelers visiting New York to the point where I believe it's the second most popular tourist attraction in Manhattan now? Well, you know, it's interesting. The trust for public land tracks a lot of things, park trends and, you know, which city has the best park systems. And, we are we have done some analysis of which are the most visited parks in America on a per acre basis. So you know, obviously Central Park has more visitors. They get 40 or 50 million visitors. But Central Park is 843 acres. The High Line is seven acres. They get over a million visitors per acre per year. So they are, it's between Bryant Park and uh, the High Line and maybe Battery Park because of the ferries to the islands that are the busiest parks in the nation, maybe in the world, in terms of visitation. So why do tourists come there? You know, there's a whole interesting phenomenon in tourism that I call urban ecotourism. In other words, young tourists, millennials, families who go to visit other cities, and they're not there to do the traditional thing. They're not just here to go to the Broadway play and get on the tour bus. <clears throat> they want to get on a city bike. They want to rent the bike. They want to get in a kayak. They want to go see you know, cool, the cool New York. 
And the High Line is the essence of cool New York. Uh, 25% of its visitors are foreign tourists. 50% of the visitors are from out of town. So it's a, it's a huge tourist magnet. And when I go to other cities and talk about parks and give speeches, I'll ask the audience, you know, show of hands, how many of you have been to, to the High Line? And half the audience will raise their hands. I'll say, how many of you have been to Central Park? And it's pretty much the same half. So it's as popular now around the world as a icon of New York as Central Park. I think also it's interesting because Han and I are, were both long-term Miami residents and we just moved here less than a year ago and we're both big fans of the High Line. But it seems also like there, you know, when you're new to New York, there's such a crush of people and the High Line gives you a chance to sort of elevate above that and get some fresh air and get another vantage of the city. I think tourists really appreciate that too. Well, it's unique and it, it, I think tourists may like it because it reminds them a little bit of home in some cases. If you come from Italy or Spain, you think of those long strolls in the piazzas or in the ramblas in Spain. It it lends itself to slow strolling as opposed to fast. Well, you can't walk fast because it's just too crowded. Uh, but it's it's a park where you can basically do only two things. You can sit or you can walk or you can walk or you can sit. You can walk slowly, you try to walk fast. But there's not much else. There's no basketball. There's no playgrounds. There is sort of a children's play space. You can maybe get a bite to eat. But it has none of the other traditional park things going on in it. It's, it's a strolling park, and it's unique in that way. The other thing, which I think you correctly assessed, is you're 33 feet above the street. But more important, you're in the middle of the street looking east and west or looking straight up 10th Avenue. Um, someplace you're floating above the street that New Yorkers never get to do that because you're always looking for, at a skewed angle of the street. But here you're looking, you can look directly across 14th Street and practically see the East River. Uh, so that's another unique phenomenon to have that mid-street view. Um, and it's and it's very much of the moment in terms of how tourists travel and what they want to see. They want to see d design and urban design is a very hot topic for tourists now. I think it starts kind of with Bilbao, and, but it's it's going on a lot now where people go to see design and architecture in parks. Meg, um I'm sure it's not a coincidence that the underline has um, a similar name to the Highline. Uh, I know that you've retained um, the landscape architect uh, who worked on the Highline. And I'm wondering how much did this project in New York inspire what you're doing or trying to do in Miami? And um, what really are your expectations for what the project can become, uh, for what the underline can become in Miami? Actually, the High Line was the inspiration. It was the it was the sort of like that moment of we can do something very special with this land that's underutilized below Metro Rail. Both of our kids live in New York, and we go there often. We've been to the High Line. You know, I really think if I hit a if, if I go to a town and I can put some walking shoes on and I can find a great park, I found a great city. And, and New York offers that. So I come, I come to this project with a very different lens. I'm not a designer. I'm not an urbanist. I'm not an architect. And, um, I just had this idea. I had broken both of my arms in a bike accident and, um, I couldn't drive. And, you know, Miami is a very car centric city. And I had to get to my physical therapy about four miles from where I live. And after a couple of months, I was like, oh, I can just take our Metro Rail, which is our above ground train um, near my home to Coconut Grove and then walk below the train tracks. And it was July. And <laughs> since you guys were from Miami, you know what it feels like in July in Miami. 
So I thought it's eight o'clock in the morning. I'm just going to be melting here. But I was walking in the shade and I realized it's comfortable. Uh, there's a hun- It's a hundred feet wide. It's three times wider than the high line is. And I was the only person walking below those train tracks on that morning. And I thought, why aren't we doing something fabulous with it? And that was sort of the beginning of the idea. You know, I, I have to say, when I first started this job, I went to visit our program in Miami. And, you know, I was kind of an urbanist. So I was noticing some things. I was noticing, hey, this is a really wonderful city with great weather. There's nobody on a bicycle. And why aren't they on a bicycle? And then I realized it's because it's not safe. There's just too much traffic. And I looked at that space under the elevated rail. I thought, what a perfect place for a linear park. I didn't know yet about the conceptions of the underline. I was wow. thinking, what a great place for a linear park, greenway, bike path, because the Trust for Public Land has done scores of those over the last 40 years. And it was just crying out. And, uh, you know, Miami has a, has a very creative history. You know, I, for the first time, saw Lincoln Road a few weeks ago and thought, this is one of the great urban spaces in the world. It was fantastic. Just so much different life on Lincoln Road. And then I love the sort of vibe of Coconut Grove and some of the other stuff that's going going on there. So it just made sense that this is the moment for Miami to kind of do a lot of things at once, but take advantage of, you know, we can't afford to have limited infrastructure anymore. Just a train line, just an elevated highway. You've got to have multifunctional infrastructure. It's a perfect place to make that right-of-way become multifunctional infrastructure. And I think especially for such a, a, a place that has so many visitors and international visitors as Miami and also as New York, if people are coming from Europe and they're used to to you know transit systems that, that run on time and are easy to navigate, um, <laughs> Miami is kind of a culture shock. So I, I think that is plays into why this is something that's getting a lot of traction um, in Miami. And I want to I talk a little bit more about that traction, but... Um, well, just one thing quickly, Meg. Could you just describe the underline a little bit more and how sure. it's different than the Highline? Well, we share the same design team, and that's about where the similarities end. Um, and we're linear. Um, but um, the underline goes from the on the north end, the Miami River, which is just shy of downtown, uh, down to the southern tip of our urban core. Uh, it's 10 miles long. We have 32 intersections. The trail is at grade. Um, it's a hundred feet wide and there is currently a path there, but it's a maintenance road, which is called, which is now a designated greenway, which gives you a sense of just how low our bar is, uh, for infrastructure in Miami for bicyclists. Um, and I think one of the reasons that this project has, has excited our community is, um, there's a pent up demand, I think, for safe places for people to walk and bike, um, we, you know, we haven't, we aren't one of those older cities where we have big avenues and boulevards and wide sidewalks. Um, and we're now the fourth most dangerous place to walk in the country and the most dangerous place to bike in the state. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, to Adrian's point, um, I think a lot of the work that we do, and I'm not sure it's exclusive to Miami, is really Band-Aid. Oh, let's just fix up this little crosswalk or let's add more lighting here. And this is really about a very bold statement that we're going to do something not just right, but we're going to do it really well. Um, we also have a history in Miami of taking a master plan and we have our master plan done and then putting it on a shelf and it gets a lot of dust. And since I'm from the outside, I'm like, well, why would you do that? And so, you know, I think there's, we, when we, if we get this done, 
Um, actually, if we start building in 2017, which is our goal, is to start building at Brickell, uh, from the time that we incorporated in January, this will be the, the fastest start time for a project of its scope in the country. And, and I really don't think that's just because of me or friends of the underline. I really give a lot of credit to the precedent projects that have helped pave the way um, and show our community who are non-believers that this not only can be done, it can be done well, and it can be transformational. The Trust for Public Land helps to raise money for parks and it advocates for more parkland nationwide. Um, can you talk a little bit about some other projects that the Highline has inspired? Yeah, you, you know, there's there, there's some antecedents that sort of predate the Highline um, that we were involved with. So we started out about 45 years ago and we've kind of been working in that urban scale ever since. But we, we've, we've done a number of what we call traditional rail trails. That is the conversion of uh, underused or uh, unused rail lines into bicycle paths. And there are a number of those around the country, the Capitol Crescent Trail in Washington, D.C. Uh, but we um, most recently, and with a direct inspiration from the High Line, we worked with the city of Chicago on something called the Bloomingdale Trail, which later became known as the 606. It's basically the High Line with bicycles. Uh, it's a three uh, 2.7 mile former abandoned elevated freight rail line. I mean, it sounds exactly like the High Line. Looks a lot like the High Line. Not quite as high up in the air at 17 feet instead of 30 feet in the air, but it runs through a combination of residential and, and uh, business neighborhoods. And we worked with another landscape architect, Michael Van Valkenburg Associates, and it's sort of spurred by this group called the, the Friends of the Bloomingdale Trail who needed a, a big sort of partner. We came in to partner with them. And then you know, fairly quickly um, raised public and private money and put together a three-mile linear park. And it comes down to grade with playgrounds and parks and ball fields. It's been a huge success for Chicago, a lot of support, first from Mayor Daly, then from Mayor Emanuel. And the whole thing was done for about $90 million. So, you know, this kind of stuff can be done. We're working on a 40-mile rail trail project in the east side of Lake Washington by Seattle, where you uh, got help get the Atlanta Beltline started, which might be the biggest of all the, all the projects around the country. <clears throat> and uh, here in Queens, we've started design on something called the Queensway, which, again, uh, it's a partially elevated, partially at grade, abandoned passenger rail line. It was called the Rockaway Beach Branch of the Long Island Railroad, and it runs right through the middle of Queens. And that's uh, a good three miles and represents about seven times the acreage of the High Line, and we can do it for about half the cost. So, you know, the, the, just us alone, we're working, or working on half a dozen projects that are kind of like the High Line, and the High Line has inspired, um, has inspired or is similar to about 60 projects around the world uh, that all have to do with the uh, adaptive reuse of abandoned urban infrastructure a railway rights of way, uh, elevated rail lines, um, former rail yards. Quite a while ago, we did a park in Santa Fe called the Rail Yard Park, which, as the name sounds, we took an old rail yard and turned it into a beautiful park with a farmer's market and indoor hall. So this, this is really the new frontier of urban design and urban development. Looking at all of this abandoned infrastructure, the maritime infrastructure, the old piers, the wharfs, the rail lines, the... There, look, there even um, there's the uh, low line, which is the proposed park you know, under the Williamsburg Bridge, uh, where there's some underground former trolley barn area. So it's it's quite amazing. And even the um, 
that the plan to build a water, a, a flood barrier around lower Manhattan has the word, they call it um, the something line. Uh, I forget what it's called. It used to be called the big U, but they put a line word in it. So <laughs> the line has become kind of like gate, like Watergate lets everything else gate. It has nothing to do with, you know, Watergate was the name of a building, but line has become this sort of uh, eponymous term for any kind of linear anything that is maybe even park-like or not even park-like. Um, well, so the underline, um, 10 miles is is a lot of miles. And, you know, you I'm sure you don't just want to have pathways that have nice landscaping around them. So I wonder what the planning process is like when you're putting together a list of the kind of features that you want to make part of that. When I, when I think about my first trip to the High Line um, and like coming on the, the little stream that flows during the summer that you can put your toes into or the, or the seating areas, you know, it's very, it's just delightful. So are you like having a field day thinking of what kind of delightful things you can program into this or um, is it, is it much more practical than that and not as much fun? Well, you know, in Miami, we have to have fun. And so, um, but we, we asked people what they want and we had six public meetings leading up to the final presentation of, um, of the underline. Um, and we had to start three and we had to break the 10 miles down into thirds and give people, um, a place that we could get for free that they could walk or bike or take transit to so that, you know, we're congruent with our message. And we basically had charrettes and at those public meetings, people told us what they want. Um, they do want the trail, but they want it so much better. Right now, it's like, an, it's like a seven or eight foot meandering path with no lighting and no amenities. They want two trails separated, one for bicyclists, one for pedestrians. They want lighting so that it's safe and it's usable at night. Uh, they want water fountains and benches. Um, they want public art. Um, they want butterfly gardens, dog parks, um, places to play. Um, overlooks, you know, because we actually connect to water and there's no celebration of that moment. Um, and we have skate parks, um, arboretums, you know, all of this has been drawn into the master plan. Um, and then based on our funding, uh, this is what we hope to realize is to sort of create this urban forest, believe it or not, right side al alongside a major arterial US-1 um, below Metro Rail and um, sort of it, yes, it'll be loud. Yes, there's going to be cars and yes, there's trains above. But I think Miami is sort of coming into its own and we need urban park solutions. And this will be 120 acres of, of surprising art and parks that connect to the neighboring communities. And, you know, just about the neighborhoods, I'm sure you guys remember 8th Street, which is Little Havana. And in Little Havana, um, in some cases, Spanish is the first language. Um, and this is a, a second generation of Hispanics that have really held on to their Cuban culture. So we want something for them in that in that park that connects um, to their neighborhood. Um, Coconut Grove um, has a neighborhood that was predominantly African-American. 
um, still is, but they have a, be- a beautiful legacy of art. So we, we want those artists to be represented um, in the areas that connect to them. So it's really going to be, it's 10 miles long, but it's really, they're all connect, they're all small segments that are relevant to those, to those adjacent neighborhoods. And how much are you thinking about, Adrian was mentioning that these kind of parks and experiences are really what tourists and visitors are craving these days when they're visiting a a new city or revisiting an old city. So how much weight are you giving to the idea that Miami is a big tourist destination versus the fact that so many people live around this park and will use it as part of their daily life? Um, Well, we're building it for residents because we really have so much need here. Um, We don't have um, facilities for walking and biking. Um, and this will be the first off-road implementation. Um, but this is a tourist town. Um, and right by, right on the other side of the river, uh, we have connections eventually to the port, which will be less than a mile away. Our northern termini, we're two miles south of Wynwood in the design district. Um, if we can connect over to uh, Miami Beach via the Venetian Causeway, um, we're offering incredible opportunities for Miami to really rethink how we connect throughout the entire county. And I think the underline is catalyze those conversations and people are saying, yeah, come to me. Um, But we really believe that this is going to be a destination. So sure, if I live right there, I'm a third of a mile away, we make it safe for people to get on across the street. Um, It can be my neighborhood park, but it can also be a tourist destination in its own right. Um, but I also want to talk about really quickly what millennials want and the kids my age want, my, not my age, the kids my age, my children's age want, which is, um, our economic impact study revealed that Miami has outspent two to one for park-like amenities like the underline. So cities like New York, Chicago, you know, our LA, Austin, Boston, San Francisco, are getting those kids to go there um, because they're seeking a city that has this type of um, amenity. And so we really believe that if we can put this here, maybe we can bring my children back to Miami, but we can also build a city that that that, that talent pool is seeking. Um, Adrian, could you talk about some of the challenges that you've seen in the past with both the High Line and some of the other uh, developments that you're participating in, um, just in terms of both public advocacy and financing. Well, you know, there, 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 there are a number of hurdles when you're trying to do these things. So everybody, it's kind of funny. Everybody you know, you had the Central Park, and, the, and everybody wanted the Central Park in their city. So Olmsted went around the country designing Central Parks, and then you had a you know, hundred years later the Central Park Conservancy, and everybody wants the Central Park Conservancy. But these things are not so replicable. So you, you can't, you can't, and you shouldn't try to do exactly the Highline. The Highline is sui generis. There, there won't be another Highline. The challenges in all the cases, the first challenge is usually um, political. That is, people have gotten used to having this abandoned rail line in their backyards, don't want people in their backyards suddenly. So the, the NIMBY factor is first and foremost, or it's, it's going to attract the bad elements. You know, criminals will be drawn to my neighborhood by you know on bicycles. It's kind of crazy stuff, but <laughs> you really have to get over that. It's kind of the problem we're facing now at the Queensway. You've got these residential houses right behind the Queensway, and they're saying, eh, you know, I'd rather have this abandoned thing behind my house. 
Yeah, we have a great designer, D-Land Studio, who have spent hours and hours doing community meetings and involving the community and thinking about what it's going to look like. And it's it's starting to pay off. But uh, the other hurdles, the other political hurdles you get are you, you can have a city administration that's just not interested. And if the you know, someone has to be an ultimate owner. It's usually the parks department or the city. Um, these are not owned by private organizations. And they'll say, well, we don't know. It's going to cost too much. We'll maintain it. It's dangerous. Um, you know, we're running into a little bit of that here in New York where there is less of an appetite now for adventurous new parks than there was under the previous administration. And even when we're saying, hey, this is for a middle-class neighborhood, we're going to address Vision Zero issues. It'll be safe bicycling, access to schools. We're still not getting the kind of traction uh, we would have gotten for a project like this under Mayor Bloomberg. So political, and then finally, it's financial. All of these things are expensive. Cities don't have a lot of money. Fortunately, um, and I suspect this will be the case for the underline, I hope it will be, you know, the federal government and state transportation agencies have been fairly good about funding alternative transportation, multimodal transportation, bicycle paths. Uh, there, there's the possibility the, the project we did in Chicago had $55 million in federal transportation money. The, the lion's share of the funding was federal transportation dollars. And so something like the underline is absolutely eligible for transportation dollars. It's, you can get congestion mitigation and air quality funding because it's taking people out of cars, which you desperately need to do. It's reducing the carbon output. It's, it's addressing public health impacts. People will be running, walking, bicycling. I think the underline is a transformational project for Miami. And, you know, it's kind of funny thinking about Meg calling herself an outsider. The biggest park projects in New York, specifically the uh, renovations of Central Park, Prospect Park, and the Battery Park, and the creation of the Highline were all done by out-of-towners, by outsiders. There are three people from San Antonio, Texas, and one from Minneapolis. So I think, you know, outsiders come in and they, they don't understand that you can't fight City Hall and they're very sort of Pollyanna-ish. So you kind of sometimes need an outside person to say, sure, we can do that. Why not? Because, you know, you get so used to saying, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that. It's, it's, I think it's no accident that, you know, Robert Hammond, one of the founders of the Highline, was from San Antonio, Texas. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time on money, but I, I think it was it's coming up to about $200 million that the Highline cost in total. And that comes from city funds and um, public funds and also private funds. And Meg, what's the, what's the cost estimate for the underline and, um, and how are you doing in terms of getting those pots of money together? Sure. It has just been a mad dash. I mean, everything we do is um, how do we get it done as quickly as possible and not approaching it kind of in a linear fashion where we're sort of okay, all these things need to be done at the same time. Um, and our total cost is over a hundred million, 10 million a mile. Um, the bulk of that is the, the transportation piece and Adrian's correct that this is actually a really good candidate for transportation dollars for federal and state as well as local transportation dollars. But they help you build a trail and a quality trail, but not a beautiful park. Um, and so how do you, how do you put all these funds together into a matrix that actually works? And so we've received, um, $3 million, um, from road impact fees from the county. Um, typically that that's money that you use to fill up potholes and build new roads. Um, and we have now gotten the county to understand 
that to build a quality facility like we want, it should also include things like, you know, shade areas and trash receptacles and so forth. And um, we've received um, a million from the city of Miami park impact fees. And then um, also two million from the state of Florida and a million from FDOT. So that's seven million in public grants. We've raised about a million privately. We just had an announcement from Swire Development. They're building building Brickell City Center here. Um, they made a six hundred thousand dollar contribution that was just announced yesterday. And um, again, I really believe the precedent from the High Line, the six hundred six, the Atlanta Beltline, you know, the Caney Way in Dallas all the great initiatives, we're getting the information here. And so we have a lot more believers, I think, than if we tried to do this 10 years ago. Um, so back to the 10, the 10 million a mile, that also includes improving all those intersections, which are really quite dangerous. Um, they've really been designed for you to only cross if you have 2,000 pounds of metal wrapped around you. And, um, and they need to be rethought, and that's part of our plan. Um, and, and then what's been surprising, I think, is the discussion of how the land use along this corridor changes when it's really sort of defined by strip malls and, and intersections and not sexy at all. Um, and and how, do, how does that those properties become part of our larger fabric? And so, interestingly enough, DOT has embarked on a study for all of US-1. Um, along this corridor, how to make it more walkable and bikeable. So again, it's that sparking of lots of other things that can happen and are happening and hopefully and quickly. We want to have this done in less than a decade. So Adrian, you brought up the the low line here in New York, which is underground. Um, and there's a lot of science and research about how they can grow plants underground by bringing this light in. So there's this really interesting um, educational component. Um, so if I'm a traveler, that's another additional draw to go see this. So I'm just wondering, and, and also Meg, just how important is it to create programming, um, you know, or knowledge sharing or anything like that um, to just add another element to the experience? Or can you just, you know, have a long walkway with plants and it's good to go? You know, it, it, I think it varies. You know, at, at this point, you almost don't want more programming for the High Line because, you know, the famous alleged quote from Yogi Berra, it's so crowded, no one goes there anymore. Uh, it's so crowded. So people in the neighborhood kind of avoid it during peak hours because it's so crowded. So, But you do want to program that space to bring in alternative audiences. So, for example, there's kind of been almost like a color barrier. You've got a major public housing project right next to the High Line, uh, the uh, Elliott Chelsea houses. And yet you don't really see people of color as much on the High Line as you should. So there's been a deliberate outreach effort by the friends of the High Line to bring that community up to say, you need to feel comfortable here. Um, so I think it's important to program. I think what they're doing at the underline is exactly right. Let's Let's program with and to and design this with the local community and really embrace the diversity of Miami, the Cuban heritage, the African-American heritage, and have that resonate in the design and the programming of the underline. Um, you know, I think something like the Queensway, we view it as a sort of linear art park. There are a lot of arts institutions in Queens, and we want to work very closely uh, celebrating the art of Queens, but more important, it is the most diverse community probably in the world. There are at least 100 different nationalities living within a mile of this. Queens is like the, the polyglot melting pot of the world. So we want to celebrate those cultures. We're going to start to do some stuff, some activation, 
through arts and culture of the space long before it becomes workable. I just want to point out something funny, Meg. Um, your cost per mile, 10 million a mile, is one sixth the cost of the High Line, which was 60 million a mile, or more than yeah. 60 million. Actually, it's more, yeah, more than, it's more like 80 million a mile. Uh, the most expensive park ever built forever, forever, forever. But it was, you know, it's, it's Manhattan, it's above ground. It's, you know, they're, they're, it's a lot easier and cheaper to work at grade than 30 feet above. And they had to strip off all the lead based paint. And it's just an enormously, enormously complicated, expensive project. You know, we hear this phrase, um, placemaking, more and more. Is that a phrase that you use? And, you know, if so, what does it mean? And this also, could you com comment on this idea that citizens are starting to become more active in designing spaces around where they live? You know, I, that's a great question. And I think that Miami, um, a lot more people use the term placemaking than I do um, because they know what they're talking about. So, um the there is a foundation here, the Miami Foundation, as well as the Knight Foundation, that has really sort of sparked this conversation of turning a space into a place. And and they are exciting the community and providing funding for ideas for how do you make that bus shelter cooler? How do you do pop-up parks? Um, how do you have these really fun interactive um, opportunities from just these dead spaces and transforming them into assets and really sort of like in these tactical ways, how can you do them quickly and implement them on small budgets? And so I think we're empowering the people to see their city differently. And so when you bring them, I think this platform for activity and for their own ideas for programming, it's a great way to make sure that you create the place but it's there, they are going to be able to activate it in a way that sort of fulfills their needs. Um, like I said, we haven't started building, but we already have an underlying bicycle club. Um, we have a young professionals organization that just got a little bit of funding to turn the Brickle segment, which is our northern end with a lot of density and a lot of young folks living there. Um, they want to create Brickle Splash, which is for a day it becomes um, a water park. Um, so we got the funding. Now we have to figure out how to get the water there. Um, <laughs> so it's good to have these types of problems because everybody's like sort of stepping up to the table. And for the Miami Foundation's most recent public space challenge, Friends of the Underline didn't come up with any ideas. Other people did for the underline. So they're going to get that funding in order to implement their cool idea um, for what they, how they think the underline should look and feel. And I, I would add to that uh, verb placemaking, the adjective creative, that they, you often see the two in tandem. And we, we, in fact, have just hired our first Trust for Public Land, that is, has just hired our first director of creative placemaking. Oh. Because you know, we... Uh, Everything we do is against the backdrop of community engagement and creative placemaking is uh, having sort of the populist uh, bottom-up placemaking, but with sort of a, a leaning towards the arts and performance and create both creatively making the place and making the place so it can be creative. Uh, we try to include some kind of art element in everything we do, usually community-based by a community artist. And um, cr creative Creative placemaking is that putting together of creativity and people to make a more dynamic space, um, and we're totally engaged with that the whole notion. We've got some some real strong encouragement along those lines from the Kresge Foundation, which is very big on creative placemaking. The Knight Foundation, uh, 
that Meg site is also very big on that. It's a, it's very much of the moment, and um, we think the the Queensway will be sort of a, a poster child for creative place making. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. This is really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck, Meg. You too. Good to talk to you, Adrian. Yeah, we're totally in your corner. <laughs> Thanks.